Mike and I went to Paris a few years ago. It was, uh, we were on our way to a wedding, decided to spend a few days in Paris, kind of like a honeymoon, because we never had one. And uh, we wanted to make it an awesome vacation, so I decided to book a scooter tour, like on one of those Vespas. So um, I thought, you know, it should be pretty fun. And we go, I go online to go book this scooter tour, and I'm scrolling down the page, and it explicitly says, as I'm about to book the tour, that you have to have ridden a scooter before, um, before making the booking. And I thought, it can't be that hard to drive a scooter. I, I drive, Mike drives. We've driven ATVs before, like, it should be easy. I drove mine into a ditch, but that's besides the point. I'm a good driver, despite how I may appear, um, stereotypes and all. No, it'll be easy. So I thought, okay, let me do some research, because the fact that I had to sign a disclaimer made me a little nervous. I'm a stickler for rules, so I felt a little anxious about that. So I did some research, and I read up the testimonials, and everyone was like, oh, it's pretty easy to pick up. So I, I booked it. Then on the morning of our tour, the, uh, the guide comes, as well as the owner, and brings two Vespas along. And then I choke up. I get really nervous. But Mike plays it cool. He goes over and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we've ridden this before. And, and the owner dangles the key in front of him and says, all right, show me. And so Mike takes the key and he swings his leg over the Vespa like it's a motorcycle. Pretty sure you're supposed to slide in, but whatever. <laughs> and he can't find the ignition. And he looks at me, and I'm like, I don't know. And thankfully, the tour guide looks at him and, and just gives him a two-minute two minute tutorial on, like, this is the ignition. This is how you accelerate. This is how you slow down. This is how you stop. And the entire time, I'm sweating bullets, thinking, what did I just get my husband into? I just signed him up to drive this machine that he's never operated before in his life around the streets of Paris. And I'm thinking, that is the most irresponsible thing to do. And I thought, all right, quick, think, Meryl. What's the, what's the most responsible thing to do now to counter that? I decided to opt to ride with the tour guide, because I figured if worse comes to worse, at least our children wouldn't be orphaned. <laughs> so there are reasons why we have rules and restrictions. And it's to keep, to keep us safe. And for those of us that don't like restrictions, being restricted by rules. We think, you know, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. I can keep myself safe. And that's what Mike thought. He drove that scooter all around, all around uh, Paris, and he was fine. No one got hurt. But what neither of us thought about is how that might have affected the people around him. Thankfully, no one got hurt, because that entire thing could have ended up potentially fatal. Rules and restrictions are meant to keep us safe from harm. And I think that was the true intention behind the purity movement. Unfortunately, though, some of those rules were harmful, too. And those rules that I heard were pretty much the following. As far as sex, I was told, don't have it. Sex is reserved for married people only, so you have to wait. And if you have sex before marriage, then you're just going straight to hell. Once you're married, you better be giving sex to your partner whenever they want it. Always sexually satisfy your partner. And I was told as a woman in particular, is if I don't sexually satisfy my husband, then he would go and find it somewhere else. So the issue with those rules, although they were created to keep us safe, they were also harmful and damaging. It, ex it also excluded the expression of sexual intimacy between unmarried folk and LGBTQ folk. So I think, dare I say, 
that we need to just scrap the whole thing, tear the whole thing apart, throw it out, because it's rubbish. I think that we can start from the basics and rebuild a new sexual ethic. Because as we heard from Dr. Tina Sherma Sellers, our God is a sex-positive God. So instead of diminishing sexuality, let's now talk about what a healthy expression of sexuality looks like. So what now? When we were talking about this, Jonathan goes, what do we do now? Do we just go all willy-nilly? Yes, he said that. And just go sleep with anyone and everyone? Do we just do away with sex before marriage? What if we need some rules and restrictions? Because I know that's what I needed when I was growing up. I needed some guidelines. I needed someone to tell me what I could and what I couldn't do. We want to be given some do's or don'ts. And as a pastor, you want me to tell you the parameters for engaging in sexual intimacy and give you permission for what you can and can't do. But I'm not going to do that. I can't continue in the same culture of pushing rules and restrictions because all I'd be doing is projecting what my desires are for intimacy onto you. Besides that, rules are funny things. We like them because they set boundaries for how we're supposed to behave, but we don't like to feel crap about breaking them, right? We don't want to be held accountable for breaking rules that may hurt others or hurt ourselves. We don't want to be called out for it. So in developing a new sexual ethic, I'm not going to set the parameters for you. Instead, I want us all to take an honest look at our sex lives and discern how best to set those parameters for ourselves. And in, set those parameters for sexual intimacy that would call us to be the light, that would bring the kingdom of peace in our lives, an ethic that calls us to check ourselves and be accountable to one another. So we need to move away from simply asking, can I have sex before marriage? If no, how far can I go before it constitutes as sex? Those are the wrong questions. Instead, we should be asking, instead of asking how far can I go with this person, we should be asking, do my actions bring peace that God intended to God's kingdom? Or do my actions bring disruption to the peace that God intended? That's the question that Jonathan posed last week, and this is what we must always come back to. And I'm thankful for the people who are in our church who came up to me two years ago and said that they weren't satisfied with the traditional sex, sexual ethic and the shame that it brought. Because now, in this church and in this generation, we have the opportunity to develop a sexual ethic that is celebratory of us and celebratory of our partner and also celebrates the gift of intimacy that God has given us. We can truly and honestly and more genuinely live out what God intended for our lives. So let's go back to the basics in now developing what a sexual ethic looks like that's centered on Christian values. When we go back to the basics, what are they? God's greatest commandments are to love God and to love others as ourselves. These two commandments don't appear in the Old Testament together, but Jesus tacks them together in the New Testament when a Sadducee, who is a teacher of the law, comes up to him and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? In Mark 12, Jesus says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he came to fulfill the law. And I hear it all the time, but what does it mean? He came to fulfill the law means that he came to give meaning to it, to reveal the intention behind it. The meaning and the intention, the intention behind the Mosaic law is to love. And Jesus brings the Sadducee back to the basics to remind him what the meaning was behind the Mosaic law. The intention, the meat, the core of it was to love. To love God was more important than blindly following the law. And we too need to go back to the basics to be reminded of what love actually means. Because I think in some ways we've forgotten. We describe love in all this warm and fuzzy language, or we use memes to divine what love is, or we use love to describe how we simultaneously, how we feel about our child simultaneously as we feel about our new shoes. I love my shoes. They make me feel so good when I put them on. It feels good. But the Greek word here that's used in this passage doesn't talk about what you get from love. It means something different. The Greek word here, you might have heard it before, is agape. And it refers to an unconditional, self-sacrificial love. And this love is often associated with God's love for us. A love that says that however we see ourselves, whether we see ourselves as unworthy or undeserving or sinful, that God's love for us is unconditional. And what it looks like, as far as the greatest commandments, is that we love each other despite our shortcomings. We love by making sacrifices of time, energy, and resources without expecting anything in return. And we see all of that throughout the, throughout the Gospels. Jesus shows love and restores people without expecting anything in return. In fact, he does this knowing full well that he's going to be killed for radically changing what our faith looks like. And it doesn't look like following a set of rules. So when we read the Gospels, and we read Paul's letters, we see a repetition of this message, to see beyond the law, that we are set free from the notion that God's love for us is conditional on how we abide by the Jewish law. God is so much bigger than that. God is not concerned with the rules surrounding a traditional sexual ethic and whether or not we abide by them. God is, wants us to be free from that free from the shame and the damage that that narrative brought. But that doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. Instead, we must love by the Spirit. Now, if you have your phones, um, you can look up Galatians chapter 5 if you have your Bible app. If you don't, you're all going to hell. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. Galatians chapter 5, life by the Spirit. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge, indulge the, sh the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but you are to be led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Before Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he sets up the framework for his readers. He is giving them the backstory for his reasoning. Paul's intention for this letter was to encourage the Galatians to step into a freedom of life through Christ without being constrained by Jewish law. And he said, but what he says is he doesn't mean that they can go and live life without accountability, live a destructive life that brings sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Now, when I, li- when I read that long list, some, I feel like over time we've kind of lost meaning of what all of that was. But I looked up the message interpretation, and it's so good. It's so in your face, no frills. Eugene Patterson uses this language that is so good. These words carry so much weight, but the words are so generalized they could mean anything. So I'm going to read the message because it creepily identifies our current struggles today. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfying wants, a brutal temper, and impotence to love or be loved. Yikes. Ouch. Also, if you didn't know what debauchery meant, now you know. So what, does, what is Paul doing when he's bringing them back to the basics is that he's saying that God said to love your neighbor as yourself, and that means to serve one another humbly in love. And Paul is saying that the law is to fulfill, is fulfilled through love. And so Paul outlines this specifically. He says that what it looks like to serve one another another humbly in love and what it looks like to love your neighbor is to be spirit-led. And in being spirit-led, Paul lists the fruit of the spirit. And I feel like, just like the other list, that sometimes these are just nebulous concepts that we don't really understand what they mean, that it's not concrete or tangible actions or behaviors. So the message, once again, beautifully interprets what this means for us. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way the fruit appears in orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity, we develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Affection for others, serenity, compassion in the heart, not needing to force our way in life. These are the fruits of the spirit we bear when we are spirit-led. And God uses, this is what Paul says is the way that we're supposed to interact with each other and interact with ourselves, what brings God's kingdom come, that brings peace to us. And Jesus 
uses fruit imagery as well. In, Gala in sorry, John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I loved you. So now when we look at both these passages, we can see three parallels. We see, firstly, in the theme of bearing fruit. Secondly, we see a repetition in the words love and joy, which are the first two fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, we see the commandment to love one another. So Paul, in spending time in, in solace, in inner reflection, he draws from this passage directly when he's writing to the Galatians. He uses these words from Jesus to encourage them that even Jesus, the Son of God, wants them to be set free from the pressure to follow law and tradition and to live out the greatest commandments instead. And this is what we need to go back to when we discern what our personal sexual ethic would look like. We need to break free from the rules and restrictions, break free from, from all of that and go back to the basics because what we've got going on right now just isn't working. We need to remind ourselves of what our true intended purpose is, and that is to love. We need to remind ourselves that purity culture wasn't grounded on love. It was grounded on the need for power and control over female bodies. It created a culture of male entitlement over female bodies, whose only purpose was to birth babies. Men laid claim to women by pushing their purity, purity culture so that their women could be theirs and theirs alo alone. That's not love. Purity culture did not teach us to see one another with love. Purity culture saw women and girls as objects, as obje objects of lust, as stumbling blocks. That's not love. That's not the fruits of affection for others or compassion of the heart. It's oppressive. But Jesus was never oppressive to women. Even when their actions weren't loving towards themselves or others, Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well or the sinful woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped the dirt off his feet with her hair. Jesus showed love and compassion to these women. Jesus showed them dignity. Jesus showed them that intimacy was good, but not in the way that they were doing it, in having multiple partners or in adultery. He named their harmful behavior, and then instead of punishing them, he sent them on their way in love with a new model of how to move forward. He said, go and sin no more calling the adulterous woman to move forward with the fruit of the Spirit in mind. Where the law said that this woman should be judged, Jesus showed grace and exemplified what justice to these women should look like. He saw them, he treated them with love and respect, and he affirmed them. And we are called to do the same. We are called to treat one another the same way that Jesus treated others. Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers says, Grace, love, compassion, and justice are the change agents of the human spirit and human community. 
When we are treated with dignity, we strive to be our best selves and strive to help others to be their best selves. So rather than a sexual ethic that's driven by restrictions and rules, it must be driven by grace, love, compassion, and justice. We must treat one another with dignity and with the fruit of the Spirit in mind. We need to see that these are things that glorify God, that bring us what God intended for our lives. God intends for us to strive to be our best selves and support each other to do the same. That's part of what loving our neighbor is about. This is good news because we don't have to be bound by do's or don'ts or what we should or shouldn't do or what's expected of us. We are now driven by Christian values that are laid out by Jesus who calls us to love. It's that simple. Both love and justice are to be practiced in all forms of sexuality by both parties involved. If we weigh up our actions against love and justice and the fruit of the Spirit, then no one is being used selfishly or is being exploited. No one is forcing their way on another. Our actions will then bring the fruit of the Spirit, the exuberance in life and serenity. In weighing up our actions on whether or not uh, they were loving, gracious, compassionate, and just, we need to ask ourselves, is this honoring myself and the other person? Are you aware and respectful of the other's desires, and are they aware and respectful of yours? And what that looks like might differ from person to person. So how do we decipher what that looks like for us? I want to encourage you to take time through prayer and contemplation, just as Paul did before he spoke to the Galatians. Take time to seek what actions bring light to our lives. What actions would glorify God? To model the intimacy of Christ, we need to connect with the divine within us, with the spirit of God in us, so that we can be spirit-led and start to create a model that, is, that glorifies God, that brings light. And that might look like waiting until we're married. And it might not, but it's not about us. It's about taking up what Jesus modeled and living by this fruit of the Spirit that glorifies God. Now, it's important that when, when you contemplate and you pray on these things, that you remember what feels right and good for you might not necessarily feel right and good for others. And we do that, when we do that, we are honestly seeking consent. Consent is the basic requirement of sex between both parties. It is necessary. Without consent, sex is not the beautiful gift that God has given us. Consent considers what the other person desires. Really discern if what I'm about to do, does it bring joy, peace, and affirms the holiness of the other person? Consent affirms them. It affirms them as a human being, as a child of God, as an embodiment of God themselves. Consent affirms their value and their worth. Consent brings peace and allows for joy and affection of one another. And this is good news. So in short, in forming a new sexual ethic, I'm not going to give you a set of rules, but I'd like to encourage you 
to form a personal sexual ethic based on the following. Mutual value. Can we shift the narrative? Can we talk instead about how to better communicate what your desires are to your partner and what actions you find respectful? Can you better respect what this person wants to engage in and what they desire? Can we prayerfully discern whether or not that is bringing joy, whether, whether or not that's bringing peace? Prayerfully discern what your parameters look like. And then let's empower one another to voice that. Let's encourage one another to seek those out and seek out the desires of our partner. Number two, consent. Let's educate ourselves on what consent looks like and what it does not look like. Go to the sex talk on the 29th and discuss what sex looks like. And then really listen to what it looks like for others as well. And lastly, let's stop shaming. Let's move away from making judgments on who should and shouldn't be having sex or whether or not they're doing it at all. Let's stop shaming, judging, and condemning people and instead foster safe space for conversation. And when you do all these three things, I want to encourage you to center and ground it all in prayer and contemplation. In that time, reflect on these two questions. Is this activity I'm about to enter into, does it bring love, joy, peace, and all the other fruit of the spirit that God intended? And also ask yourself, is this activity I'm about to enter into honoring, affirming, and celebrating of myself and my partner? The way to discern this is to really take time in honest prayer and contemplation. Prayer to connect with the divine image in you so that what your actions are, are spirit-led and they glorify God and I want you to be empowered in that. I will close with this quote from Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers, that sexuality has been given to us to bless us and bless anyone we share it with, not to be taken lightly something that can be used to heal and nourish you and the other. Use it to make the world better in some way. Let us pray. I want you to just take a few minutes to sit quietly in contemplation and let this message sink in. What does it look like for your actions to glorify God? What does it look like to engage in intimacy that brings joy and brings peace? What do your own personal parameters look like? What does it look like to have a conversation with your partner to find what their parameters are, what they desire, what, they, what actions they find respectful? Dear God, I thank you for a community that takes brave steps and asks brave questions, a community that seeks to define love, a community that seeks to find the intention behind rules. Remind us, God, that as we go forward, remind us that our actions are to be spirit-led. Remind us, God, that through our actions, we should bring love, joy, peace, and all the fruit of the spirit. God, I ask that that anyone who has been hurt, God, that you be there for them, God. 
that you bring your healing spirit behind them, God, and bring, bring them restoration. God, I ask that they can begin to heal and restore and move forward by your spirit. In your way we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.